Welcome to episode 39 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is Mr. Jim Radloff. Welcome back, Jim. Hello. So, listeners, we've already heard Jim a few times, and we'll hear him again for uh, several more appearances. I think this is the halfway point of my appearances. Yep. I think I had seven I counted, and I've still got Fatal Attractions, X-Men God Loves, Man Kills, and... Avengers vs. X-Men. Yep. Yep. Yep, that's the way we have it, too. So, all right. So, this time around, we are talking about Captain America Volume 5, which is the volume that started in 2005, issue 25. The one written by Ed Brubaker, with pencils and inks by Steve Epting, colors by Frank Darmada, lettered by Joe Caramagna, and edited by assistant editors Molly Laser and Aubrey Sitterson, and main editor Tom Brevoort, under editor-in-chief Joe Casada. The cover date is April 2007, and the actual release date was February 28, 2007. As we said in the kickoff, this came in at number 39 in the countdown. All right. So when we talk about these comics, we usually talk about three possible reasons that this could be on here in terms of entertainment value, in terms of continuity, and in terms of entertainment. This is one of the titles that's on here largely because of the role it fills in continuity. It is an entertaining book as well. We'll get into the details later. But the only reason to pull this particular issue out of the overall fantastic Ed Brubaker run is really the way it ends. So you should know by now, spoilers are very much on the table during this podcast. Sometimes you just have to do that and discuss spoilers to discuss why these comics are here, this is one of those issues. So if you haven't read it, it is worth reading, although I would recommend going back and starting with issue one of Ed Brubaker's run. Most of those, well, actually the first half of the run, shows up later on the countdown anyway, so you could just save some time and read the whole thing. And uh, if you don't have access to it or don't necessarily feel like it, this was actually the first part of this series that I picked up, and I understood almost everything right away. And if you follow the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you will actually follow just a little bit more than I did. Okay. Yeah, it is there. Part of the story structure is to recap the broad strokes of what's happened before this issue. But if this is your first introduction, there are some spectacular reveals that will not be as meaningful if you go back and read the earlier issues. So if you are reading along with the podcast in order, this would be almost like the situation that we had when we discussed World War Hulk prior to Planet Hulk, because the way it played out, you may have the same issue here, so it's up to you. Read at your own risk. Although I probably should have said that last week, come to think of it, but anyway. <laughs> well, and I will be throwing in a very brief reference to one particular part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe later, but it shouldn't spoil anything too badly. No. So let's go through the plot synopsis on this one. We do need some context for this. This issue is branded Civil War Epilogue. Marvel's Civil War event will be discussed in much greater detail in Episode 2 of this countdown. At this point, the important thing to know is that the government introduced what they called the Superhero Registration Act. So if you were an active superhero in any capacity, or super being, hero and villain alike, you had to register with the government and fall under S.H.I.E.L.D.'s command. Tony Stark supported the Superhero Registration Act because he was in Congress, he saw the way the, the tide was turning, and he figured, we are not going to be allowed to operate independently as we have been thus far, and this is the best possible outcome. If we push back too hard, they're just going to try to shut us down completely. So he came out in support of the Superhero Registration Act, 
Steve Rogers as Captain America led the team against it, which put Tony and Steve at odds. That emotional core seems to be translated into the Captain America Civil War movie that is still upcoming. I don't know and frankly don't see how they could base the movie on that Superhero Registration Act, given the way the previous America movie ended. It would be kind of a moot point. But in any event, Cap was leading the rebel team in opposition of the government mandates, and in the end of Civil War, stood down and turned himself in for reasons that we'll get into in May of 2016. So what we need to know now is that Cap is being led to the courthouse for a public trial rather than a typical military tribunal because they wanted complete transparency for the public, just because of the symbol Captain America is, which also means that the general public knows exactly when and where they can find him. So while Nick Fury is orchestrating an attempted rescue mission with Sharon Carter and Bucky leading the charge, who sort of have their own reminisces and think about their own history with Cap, we get the Red Skull and his machinations in what appears to be an attempt to assassinate Captain America. Starts with Captain or Steve Rogers seeing the red laser dot on the back of the U.S. Marshal in front of him and handcuffed Captain America, knocks the guy down or out of the way and takes the bullet for him. And in the ensuing panic, there are three shots fired at close range into Captain America's abdomen. So he's got four major bullet holes. He gets immediate medical attention. Bucky gets word from Nick Fury about where the shots came from. And when he goes to examine that, the Falcon sees that, but Falcon and Bucky are not on good terms. So they have a, a bit of a tense moment, shall we say. Meanwhile, Steve Rogers gets carried off to the hospital while Bucky convinces Falcon that they're on the same side and he uses Falcon's help to fly him into the helicopter with Crossbones, a.k.a. Brock Rumlow, who actually was the sniper in the apartment building, though clearly not the one who shot Cap at close range. And Falcon delivers him and there we get a fairly divisive Bucky versus Crossbones fight with the Red Skull's daughter Sin watching on and taking the Red Skull's orders not to participate. The Winter Soldier leaves a beaten crossbones in the care of Falcon to turn him over while he clears out, so he doesn't have to deal with the authorities, because he's not exactly well-liked by American authorities at this part in his history, for reasons that we'll get into when we discuss the Winter Soldier story arc down the road. Meanwhile, Sharon Carter accompanies Steve Rogers to the hospital, where one of Dr. Faustus's agents comes in and gives her the trigger words so that she remembers that it was in fact her, under post-hypnotic suggestion, that shot Steve Rogers at close range. So she was the gunman that landed the three blows that probably pushed him over the edge, and Captain America is dead. And there's sort of a, that last page has what I consider to be a bit like overly morbid imagery to it, where instead of just having the body bag over him or the sheet over Captain America's body, there's a sheet over most of him, but his arm is draping outside of it, and you can see part of his face from under the sheet. Yeah, it is a little morbid, but I wonder if they did that just because in comics they're not dead unless you see the body. Yeah. And even then, not necessarily. So that could have been trying to drive the truth of this story home as far as the readers are concerned. Though that's subjective because this is the creative team that would later bring Steve Rogers back to life. Mm-hmm. In a five, then six-part limited series. Yep. Which is Captain America Reborn, in no way related to Green Lantern Rebirth. Instead, this is a six-part series where the dead character comes back to life and the replacement is set up in his own role for the future while dealing with a major villain from his past who helped him die. Nothing at all like Green Lantern Rebirth. No. <laughs> this one's Red, White, and Blue Lantern Rebirth. Oh, okay. No, it's, I mean, we make light, but it's, you can draw parallels in broad strokes 
but you pick up both miniseries and read them, and they are actually quite different on the page. Yeah. Obviously, the first thing that I thought of when I read about this being the death of Captain America was I thought about the death of Superman, which came out about 10 years earlier. And I thought about that because because it was such an interesting contrast between how DC handled taking Superman out of the picture and how Marvel handled taking Captain America out. Because DC killed off Superman sort of during the big comic boom before the bubble burst, if I remember correctly. Yep. I believe it was 93. Yeah, I believe so. And they plastered it everywhere. Everybody knew that Captain America was going to, or that Superman was going to be killed in the comics. And uh, people thought that the issues leading up to his death were going to become collector's items. The issue of his death would be a collector's item. And they didn't really talk about what was going to happen afterward, but everyone was suddenly interested in just what was going to happen there. Now with this... They intentionally tried to avoid really revealing what was going to happen to Captain America. Due to availability of comics for myself, I actually heard about it before I read it only because the media latched onto it. And I could really tell that it was the media learning about it rather than Marvel telling the media about it. Because there was a an article that I got for this podcast and then realized, wait a minute, a visual medium is not going to work on a podcast. But it was an article in, like I said, the Minneapolis Star Tribune about Marvel Comics killing off Captain America. But it was a picture of Captain America from the Ultimates. That was how you could tell it wasn't a Marvel ploy to get that in the paper because they would have told them to get the right Captain America. Yeah, my history of this is kind of similar. I was actually also spoiled before I read it. I was collecting the entirety of Civil War, including Captain America. But my job sometimes takes me out of town. And I was out of town that entire week. So Wednesday morning, I wake up knowing, yeah, it's new comic day. I'm not flying back home till Friday. I had it figured out. My flight back was timed so that I could actually make it to the comic shop before it closed on Friday night. Mm-hmm. So I figured just stay off social media, stay offline for a couple of days, just focus on work. And then when I get home, I could go straight to the comic shop, grab it and read it with no spoilers. Don't worry about any spoilers or anything like that. Get in the rental car on Wednesday morning. And this is the rental, so my... My iPod dongle didn't plug in, so I couldn't listen to my own music. Turn on the car, and the first words out of the DJ's mouth were, Marvel is killing Captain America today. It was just, ah! So it was announced on the the morning drive at 8 a.m. at a station in the Vancouver area, because I was actually in Maple Ridge. Yeah, so I, I was spoiled on it before I got it, but there were still enough surprises, particularly the identity of the shooter, that didn't seem to leak, that still make it a very worthwhile issue. But yeah, I think the death of Captain America... And his replacement, eventual replacement, I should say, by Bucky, was actually very well done. Well, and I hadn't really thought about it at the time, but this is kind of interesting looking back at it because the two people who fight each other, who have the first fight in this comic, are Cap's replacements. Because Bucky did wield the shield for a while, and as of the recording of this podcast, uh, the Falcon has been uh, wielding it for a while Mm -hmm. as uh, Captain America himself. Yeah, these are the guys who are closest, which makes sense. I mean, if you're looking at the people who are going to step up, when this happened and they were talking about who will be the next Captain America, and Marvel did do press on that. I mean, as you said, the only official release I saw from Marvel prior to this issue hitting, I didn't see any releases from Marvel saying what was happening. And I'm subscribed to Marvel's press releases and was at the time. The closest thing that I, I saw to that was the email that they sent out to retailers that said, 
doesn't matter how many copies of Captain America 25 you've ordered. You haven't ordered enough. We are printing triple the number of copies that people have ordered. So we will have spares. Be prepared to up your orders. We will do our best to fill them. But you may be better off just ordering more to start. Yeah, I'd agree with that because none of the retailers in my town carried Captain America at the time. So I actually had to drive all the way to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And there I found a bookstore that had two copies left. And they were both variant covers. They were the version where Cap Cap is looking fully well and healed and looks like he's running toward the reader. Doesn't give you any idea what's going on in the issue. I picked both of those up because I knew I had to have this. Yeah. And even, you know, as I said with the Superman thing, we knew Superman was going to be back at some point. Everyone knew Captain America was going to be back. It was a question of when, not if. Mm -hmm. But it was still, you know, we're going to look back at this later and we're going to want to read it. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to comic book death, I've discussed it before on the podcast. I think in the Amazing Spider-Man 700 podcast, I consider there to be four levels of comic book death. Level one is, we couldn't find the body, but nobody would have survived that fall, which is, it's the kind of death that neither of the characters believe anymore, right? Joker falls off a cliff, they don't find the body, Batman goes, yeah, he'll be back. The second level of death is this one, where the creative team that kills the character is the same creative team that build, that brings them back as part of one big story arc. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing here is, in the interim, Bucky takes over, which I'm happy with, because reading through the first 25 issues, I didn't want Bucky to be the, bet, the next cap because Bucky was not in a position to be Captain America at that time. It takes months before he picks up the shield, and by that time he's ready. So kudos to Ed Brubaker for recognizing he wasn't ready yet and getting him ready before they pass that shield on. The third level of comic book death would be like your Barry Allens and your Hal Jordans, where the creative team that kills them really is trying to kill them forever, and somebody else brings them back. And this seems to be the really the most significant level of comic book death you can get. Because the fourth level, they used to say that permanent death was reserved for Uncle Ben, Jason Todd, and Bucky Barnes. By the time this story came out, that list was down to Uncle Ben. Although even that was debatable because Bucky came back to life. These are the permanent deaths. Jason Todd had come back to life. And Peter David, just to toy with the fans where he was reading that online, wrote a story in his Spider-Man book where it appeared that Uncle Ben came back, but it was actually an Uncle Ben from a different universe and not the 616 yeah but that's it seems like the only way to die and stay dead forever well there's two ways i guess to die and stay dead forever in comics one be so incredibly unpopular that nobody cares or two make your death the defining characteristics of some character's origin so i think that's why uncle ben and thomas and martha wayne are the ones who have stayed dead and even then if you go to flashpoint that's debatable but yeah, this turned out to be that second level where the creative team that kills them is also the creative team that brought them back. It's kind of a testimony to how ambiguous they were being with it, that they didn't make this its own event, because they the, the amount of reaction from all sorts of different characters and the way they built Captain America back, this could have been an event, and they just kind of had it, well, it's technically an event, but not a crossover. It's just a thing that happened like ordering a bagel at breakfast or even buttering that bagel it's it's just that's how seriously most people take comic character deaths but they could have built this up into a crossover and it did affect a lot of people but it didn't actually get drawn out as a lot of people trying to work together about it it just sort of 
happened and some people reacted to it. Actually, in fact, there was a lot of debate in the editorial offices because Ed Brubaker was planning to kill Captain America right when he took over the book. And there was debate about exactly when that should occur to the point that they were talking about putting that, that beat or that moment in Civil War and ending it that way. And I guess one of the reasons they chose not to is they figured, no, if Cap doesn't stand down and survive at the end of the actual Civil War miniseries, right, if he falls in the line of duty, then those who are following him will never stand down and will never relent. And we don't get this peace, tense peace, but peace that we have after the Civil War. And the other reason that they did it was because Brubaker had set this up. Now, what Brubaker was doing is one of those stories where it's very intricate, very well plotted, and very well respected. So it was almost not even mentioned by any of the other creators, not because they weren't passionate about it, but because they didn't want to get in his way. It's like when in the shared universe, you will get some runs that are completely on their own because people, you know, they may be enjoying them, but they're not so passionate about it that they want to bring it into their own book. Then when they like it a little bit more, they want to bring it into their own book, sometimes to piggyback sales, sometimes to shine a light on the other book and get people looking at it. Or sometimes just because the idea excites them so much that they want to play with it themselves. And then you get even further, and it's at the point where nobody wants to touch it because they don't want to mess around with it. I mean, Brian Michael Bendis avoided crossovers between Ultimate Spider-Man and The Ultimates for quite a while because The Ultimates was running late. And even though he loved what was in there and really wanted to play with those toys at the pace that he and Mark Bagley worked versus the pace that Miller and Hitch were working, he didn't want to spoil their story by revealing what's coming next by publishing first. So this was another one of those hands-off things where people were like, no, Brubaker has got a plan. It's an awesome plan. Let's wait for the chips to settle down until we get something resembling a status quo. And at that point, when Bucky is the one wielding the shield, he starts showing up in a lot of places. And that wasn't editorial saying, no, you can't have him yet. That was the other creator saying, this isn't the right time to get him, right? This is a story that's so well-paced, we shouldn't be saying, oh, and these characters went off and had this adventure along the way. They've got to be focused on their adventure, and then we'll take over. And that was the impact that this had on Marvel Comics. Captain America was dead and stayed dead for a couple of years. The, I think the only miniseries that spun out of it, actually, there were six issues that spun out of this, outside Captain America specifically. First was the five-issue Fallen Sun miniseries. Jeff Loeb had recently lost his own son when this issue came out, and he wrote the five-issue Fallen Sun miniseries about the death of Captain America, which was really a set of five one-shots with five different characters going through the five different stages of grief and mourning. So your denial, your anger, your bargaining, that was the, the concept behind Fallen Sun. And Jeff Loeb was at the, I don't know, it's hard to say it's the right moment of his life to do that when he was, it was probably the most terrible part of his life. But at the same time, you know, when you need to, when you have something that big happen and you can't separate yourself from your work, then sometimes that is a good way to get it out. Yeah, I do hope that it was more therapeutic than painful for him. So those are the five issues, and the sixth issue was the Who Will Wield the Shield one-shot. Although, I don't know, my favorite contender for that one-shot was not the one who ended <laughs> up eventually wielding the shield. I kind of would have liked to see four Bushman with the shield for a while. Yeah, I, I did like a couple of those issues in the various things. Like, um, one of, one of my favorite comics in general is actually the Fallen Sun issue where uh, Spider-Man is dealing with his loss, and he's uh, sitting in a graveyard reflecting on the people he's lost, and he sees the rhino and thinks the rhino must be up to something, so he attacks without thinking. And it turns out the rhino was just visiting his mother's grave 
and the two of them have a fight because Spider-Man makes the accidentally causes the rhino to desecrate his mother's grave and now rhino's out for blood. The the way all of these characters are emotions are running so high and the one thing that allows some of them to continue is their anger or their annoyance with other people like one of the things Wolverine does to snap Spider-Man out of his funk is say that, you know, Cap believed in you. When we were putting this team of Avengers together, I said, we shouldn't have you on it. But Cap said that we needed you. And Spider-Man basically says, wow, you're full of crap. I was one of the founding members of this team. You you came around later. <laughs> we picked you up in the Savage Land and like issue four. Yeah, not that he put it quite in one of those terms, but yeah. <laughs> but um, like I said, going back to something I kind of mentioned earlier, for people who have followed the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, you'll actually recognize most of the characters in this and probably get a little bit more out of it than I did at the time, because part of it is Captain America, as much of an iconic character as he is now, wasn't as big until this crossover. I mean, for years, the Avengers were sort of the B-team, with the X-Men being... uh, The the X-Men... Uh, Spider-Man and sometimes, depending on what year you were looking at, the Fantastic Four being the A-team. And, uh, Captain America was kind of a second tier character. So a lot of people, myself included, hadn't really been reading his own series. So I had kind of a vague idea of who Falcon was, but I had no idea who Winter Soldier was. I didn't know that was Bucky. I didn't know who Sharon Carter was. And, uh, in one of the, early pages Sharon is talking about her aunt Peggy who knew Captain America during World War II and yes that is Peggy Carter Agent Carter from Marvel's Agent Carter and Sharon is the girl who was living in the apartment down the hall from Cap in Captain America Winter Soldier yeah Winter Soldier is the description of the first 12 or 13 issues of this run that are going to be discussed later. And that's of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that have taken the names of comic story arcs. That's the one that's probably closest to the original material. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the 10 issue Age of Ultron miniseries event that came out a while ago. Nothing like the Age of Ultron movie. Nothing. No, which is good because frankly, I prefer the movie to that particular event, which by the way, did not make the list. That's essentially what, what this is. I mean, it, for entertainment value, it's a very good issue in the middle of a very good run. Mm-hmm. When I was getting back into comics, I was asking people on news groups, if I'm looking for definitive runs on these characters, which runs should I pick up? And as Jim said, Captain America was not terribly popular. They were basically coming back from Captain America. The then current Ed Brubaker run was one that they consistently pointed me to. The Mark Wade run from the 1990s. And then the third and final run that they were consistently pointing me to was the Steve Englehart run from the 70s, particularly the story arc that dealt with the fallout from Watergate. So that's a 25-year gap, followed by an eight-year gap, I believe, in terms of runs that are worth tracking down. So Cap is, he's a very good symbol, but to me, Cap is like Superman in the DC Universe. He's best leading the premier team. The emotions that Cap inspires in his teammates, just like what Superman inspires from his teammates in the JLA, or Justice League, if it's not so localized at the time, I find that more interesting than most of their solo runs. And part of that is because both of them are really hard to write. In Superman, it's finding the right threat level or the right challenge for him. With Captain America, 
I think it was actually summed up the best by the writing team on the Captain America Winter Soldier movie when they made their appearance in the Nerdist Writers Panel podcast. The big problem with writing Captain America is coming up with a character arc for him. Because if you go to his origin story, psychologically, he is there from day one. That's why he is chosen for the experiment. That's why he gets the body to match the mind. Which means at the end of Act 1, once he's got the body to match, it's very difficult to give him room for personal growth that doesn't break everything. Because he's really there. And that is a very big challenge when you're writing Captain America. And that's that's where Ed Brubaker came from. He seems to have that same approach where, you know, we're dealing with a guy who always makes the right decision. So how do you make things challenging and difficult for him? You put him in a situation where there is no right decision and let him find the right decision that nobody else believes even exists and nobody else can see. And that's that's mostly true for him. Well, discuss what happens when that's not true in a later podcast but yeah yeah but that's that's really the fundamental problem writing the character and that's probably why i i enjoy him more in team books because you can surround him with the flawed characters who deal with those personal decisions i mean it's it's like early in the grant morrison run when kyle rayner looks up and goes oh that's superman i've got to step up my game you know and even superman tries saying oh well you know i don't think i'd even live up to my own hype it's okay it's not that significant and then two issues later, someone's asking Kyle Rayner, yeah, where's Superman? Oh, the guy who doesn't believe in his own hype? He's putting the moon back in orbit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and the other thing about Captain America on a team is he can look much more significant when he's actually just sort of participating rather than leading or, or soloing, as, as it were, just because... He can be, he, he seems to have this uncanny ability to be in the right place at the right time when the action's going on all around him. I think at one point they described part of his, well, quote unquote power set, some of the effects of the super soldier serum as that he sees faster than a lot of people because his reflexes are so much quicker than a lot of people that it just seems like he processes information more than, I mean, quicker than other people. So he, he can sort of see, okay, there's a group of Hydra soldiers over there, and there's a couple AIM chuckleheads over there, and Thor can handle this guy, and Iron Man can handle this guy, and Hawkeye can cover me so I can go in here. But he's sort of the opposite of Superman in that Superman can and sometimes will do everything by himself. He's strong and fast and impressive enough to be a whole team, and Cap just has to figure out where he's needed the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's definitely, physically speaking, not at Superman's level. Not by a long shot. Even the current depowered Superman is still way beyond Cap. Is this... Even the original Superman was way beyond Cap. Yeah, yeah, he does have his work cut out for him. And, I mean, if we do want to get into deeper meanings and look for the messages, morals, and meanings that we could take away from this in this segment that I have so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody should be listening to because it's great. And I always feel like I should be copying the one robot voice when you mention this. Yeah, if anything, that is the message with this. Like, I mean, Captain America is in a situation where it's, you know, the message we have in every Captain America story that feels like a Captain America story is do the right thing no matter what. Do not compromise your principles. Do not compromise your ethics. I mean, the people who are leading him into court to be tried, one of them is about to get shot and Cap takes the bullet for him, knowing full well that he may not survive. Because Cap is peak human, but he's still very much human. 
A bullet will kill him just like it will kill any other human. He could take a bit more punishment than the rest, but yeah, he is essentially Olympic-level athlete, but not beyond. So that's what I picked up from this. I don't know if you noticed anything else. Actually, um, as you mentioned, Mission Log, I was listening a couple of days ago to one of their first 50 or so logs. I can't remember which one it was, but it was the one where someone pointed out the thought of McCoy, Kirk, and Spock as the, and I'm going to get them out of order, but Aristotle's rhetorical devices of ethos, pathos, and logos. Yeah. And those those being the ethics, the emotion, and the logic. And to me, Captain America is Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor, the big three of the Avengers, are quite often about the same. Captain America being either the ethos or the pathos, depending on the situation, because he is very much about his own ideology, which usually gets into the ethos area, but He's also very emotional about it, sometimes excluding logic. So I, 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 I don't know whether or not to consider it pathos, but he's definitely not logos, but he's either ethos or pathos. And I don't really know which one to consider Thor between yeah. those two, but I would say Thor is more driven by passion and emotion and cap passion comes out, but it's usually passion for the American dream, which supports his ethical stance. So I put Cap at Ethos, Thor at Pathos, and definitely Tony Stark at Logos, yeah. as it was done. And it was one of the early episodes of Mission Log where it was actually one of the writers or one of their listeners who pointed it out to them and didn't take credit, and they weren't sure where the, the credit was due because the listener said he'd heard it and it wasn't his own idea. The first time I saw that idea was actually in the leaked treatment for J. Michael Straczynski's idea for a reboot of Star Trek as a TV series. And he said, yeah, there's your Ethos, Pathos, and Logos. It's a five-year mission again, and the reason it's five years is because those three are the only three on board who know that there's a bigger mission that they're building towards. If you have any interest in Star Trek, track down Straczynski's proposal for a rebooted series and then lament the fact that they gave it to J.J. Abrams as a movie instead. Even though I quite enjoy his first movie. But when I read that treatment, it's like, oh, we could have had this? What? You mean at the, at one point there was a time when J. Michael Straczynski was screwed out of Doing something Star Trek-like? <laughs> yeah, only it was the actual Trek this time. <laughs> yeah, because that's... I guess that was one of the reasons Paramount didn't pick up Babylon 5 is because they were saying, well, can you make it Star Trek? And you can't. That's... I enjoy almost all of Star Trek. I enjoy almost all of Babylon 5. But despite the surface similarities, they are two different beasts. And I don't think Babylon 5 would work in the Trek universe. Seeing Flounder from Animal House as one of the future leaders of the galaxy is just kind of jarring for me but in any event i think that's about it i mean there's not a clear message in this isolated issue that's unique to this issue i mean this this particular issue isn't here because of a message or moral this is a plot driven point that gets us from a to b and presents us in advance with the emotional weight that cap has on his friends so we can feel their pain I mean, knowing what might be coming, it feels almost like it was structured thinking yeah this is going to be the jumping on point for a lot of people let's make sure they're ready to jump on so even though it, it cuts down in some of the reveals that you'd have in those first few issues, you know, it's the same reveals you see in the movie where Cap is dealing with the Winter Soldier before he knows who the Winter Soldier is under that mask. Well, and it's it's easy to just give no real thought to some of these characters. Like in your plot synopsis, you referred to one of Dr. Faustus henchwomen or something to that effect activating Sharon Carter and 
making her remember shooting Cap. You didn't mention her by name. That's Sin. That's uh, the Red Skull's daughter. He mentioned that a uh, couple panels earlier, but it's very easy to skip to forget who that is or not know who that is. Yeah, although when you're paying attention, the last time we see her, she's putting on the wig in a close-up of the face, similar to what we see there. And she does have she does have just one strand of red hair going down as she's saying to remember. Yeah, we can, but I don't know. Some of that might have been me trying to block Sin's role out of the story. I forgot she was in it till I was rereading it, and when I think of Sin, I think of another Marvel event that did not make the countdown. Okay, so from here we want to get into why we think it landed at this point in the countdown, and I think we've already kind of covered that, right? Yeah, it's, well, like you said, it's, I'm trying to remember what we usually consider for the criteria. I I know it definitely fits two of them. It's a story that definitely affects continuity, and it's a story that definitely holds up. Yeah, it's entertaining. Yeah, it fits the continuity, uh, but in terms of the the message that it's conveying, it's not really a message book. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to remember. So I, I think that's why it, it's on the countdown, but why it's only 39 is because there's others that have bigger points in continuity. I mean, had Captain America or Steve Rogers still been dead when the vote was taken, it could very well have landed much higher. And this was also sort of the point where I think this was the first real comic book death where fans just said, nah, he's not staying dead. So as a fandom moment, it was kind of effectual there. But Yeah. Okay. So did you have any closing thoughts on this one? Uh, no, I didn't really. So in that case, we'll wrap up this episode. You can join us again next week for Avengers The Kree Scroll War. If you're reading along at home, you can find that in the self-titled trade paperback collection in Essential Avengers Volume 4, in Marvel Masterworks 137 Avengers Volume 10, in The Kree Scroll War starring the Avengers issues 1 and 2, the 1983 miniseries that reprints issues 93 to 97 of the original Avengers, when the actual full Kree Scroll War starts in issue 89 and continues to 97, so that reprint would be missing something. Issue 95 alone was reprinted in Marvel Masterworks The Inhumans Volume 1, and you can also read it in its entirety on Marvel Digital Unlimited and on Comixology. So plenty of places to track that one down for what I guess will be the exact midpoint of this 75-issue countdown, episode 38. So I'd just like to wrap up by saying please rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere else you could find podcasts. I'd like to thank Jim for joining us once again. I'd like to thank you once more for having me. And yeah, we'll hear from you again in just a few short weeks. And for everyone else at home, please just remember, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.